Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. What kind of architect do you want to be? This is episode 317, Growing Your Architecture Firm Through Respect, Teaching, and Learning, with Tehran Duda and Jeffrey Payne of Duda Payne Architects. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And our friends at RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more for free at RCAT.com. Taran Duda and Jeffrey Payne, welcome to Entre Architect Podcast. Good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Taran Duda, FIAA, FAIA, is founding principal at Duda Payne Architects based in Durham, North Carolina. Taran is a passionate believer in ideas as catalyst for great design. His conceptual focus and dynamic design approach have led the creation of innovative projects for a wide spectrum of building types, scales, and purposes. He is also an advocate for placemaking in cities such as Austin, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, Washington, D.C., Raleigh, North Carolina, and Monterey, Mexico. Tehran is reshaping building form to meet the demands of today's communities, foster a sustainable world, and inspire the future. Tehran is a frequent speaker on topics such as design methodology, 
and the role of public space within private development. In 2012, he was elevated to the AIA's College of Fellows for his approach to architectural design. Congratulations to you for the FIA. Jeffrey Payne, FAIA, is a founding principal of Judah Payne Architects and sees the architectural process as an opportunity to expand the power and function of design. Jeff leads the technical execution of every Judah Payne project. Jeff is a frequent speaker at graduate programs in architecture, real estate development, and business and professional forums. He recently completed a four-week research project on the history, implications, and influences of public spaces in architecture at the American Academy in Rome. So, Tehran and Jeff, thank you for being here. I shared a little bit about you and what you do at Duda Payne. Before we get started into our conversation, I would love to dive a little bit deeper. I'd love to have you share your story, your journey from where you discovered your passion for architecture and where you find yourself today. We'd love to hear your origin stories. Let's start with Tehran. Thank you for, uh talking to us this morning. You know, I think I probably have a story that's similar to many architects out there. Uh, my family actually, were a family of immigrants. We traveled all over Europe before the age of seven and eight. Uh, came to the U.S., settled in North Carolina. And of course, when I finished high school, my father said, what would you like to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an artist. Uh, he quickly picked up the newspaper, looked at the ads, and said, I don't see any advertising for artists. <laughs> you better find a, a real profession where you can make money and I don't have to support you the rest of your life. So uh, my passion was for art, and uh, the challenge was finding a profession where I could uh, use my artistic skills in a way to create a living. And architecture became that, that passion for me because I realized that the challenges of architecture are not just making beautiful things, but also impacting people's lives. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful challenge. Uh, I went on from uh, NC State College of Design, undergraduate school, to Yale for three years for, to get my master's. And I, it's there that I met uh, Cesar Pelli. He was the dean of the architecture school. He hired me right after I got out of uh, graduate school and said, I'd like you to come work for me. The office was only six people at the time. Of course, it grew to be 120. But I, I have to say one of the most important uh, words of advice I can give a young architect or even a graduating architect is how important it is to have a great architect as a mentor. Mentorship is essential. Teaching and learning the craft of what we do as architects is really, really important. Uh, after spending 17 years with Caesar and the New Haven office, I think both Jeff and I thought we were ready to fly. We, were ready, we had grown our wings and we were ready to create our own firm, have our own voices out there, and to see what we could do as a uh, two architects who are beginning an office. So it's a, it's a wonderful journey to be able to have learned what we have learned from a great teacher and great mentor. Uh, and you don't really sometimes really even know how much you've learned until you're, you have left the nest. Yeah. That's when you realize just how much you have 
built into your memory of, of design skills and the muscles that you have in your imagination. So it's something that I, I think is essential and oftentimes when I was teaching for 10 years at Yale, I used to tell the students, choose wisely because the first office that you work for, the first architect you work for, can really set your expectation of what architecture should be and can be. And you want someone who's going to inspire you at the highest level and show you how it can be done because it's, this is a, such a challenging profession that we have with all of its complexities. That's fantastic. Thank you, Tehran. Jeff, would you like to share your origin story? Yes. Um, I, I started being interested in art and architecture uh, as a young boy uh, in sixth grade. By then, I knew I wanted to be an architect. I think I was partially influenced by a great uncle who was a very noted American architect, uh, Ralph Walker. Uh, my dad used to take me to visit him uh, at his home, and I think I was enthralled with his larger-than-life uh, persona. I also had an older brother who was an artist and a musician, and so uh, I was very intrigued with this duality of the architectural profession. Uh, there's the artistic side, and then there's the business side. And there has to be this, uh, this balance uh, between the two. I think that speaks to why Tehran and I have been successful uh, in many ways, because uh, as the managing principal, um, you know, we, we, um, and he is the design principal, it's worked out well for us in pairing our skill sets. Um, we're still both in every design review. Uh, we challenge each other's thinking. Uh, there's a lot of um, power in that. Thinking back uh, to when we first met, we met in 1982, uh, working for Cesar Pelli, as Tehran had mentioned. Prior to that, I worked for Kevin Roach, John Dinkaloo and Associates. Kevin Roach is another gold medalist. And uh, just to repeat what Tehran said, having a mentor uh, or mentors like that is, is really critical, and we've been blessed uh, by having them in our lives. Um, uh, so when we met in 82, uh, Tehran had been there for a couple of years. He, as he said, he was the sixth employee. I think I was the 34th employee. employee. And people would ask us, friends would ask us over that duration of time of 15 or 17 years, when are you going to um, leave and start your own practice or do something else? And we always felt like we were learning something and we were progressing our uh, careers, but also progressing our abilities as architects and as, as people that had to um, really meet the expectations of our clients, you know, it's easy to forget sometimes that this is a service profession. So balancing those needs and doing great architecture is something we learned. It took a long time for us to learn it. Maybe we're slow learners, but we didn't start our practice until we were both about 45. And you know, they talk about um, uh, the 10,000 hour rule. Uh, and we're, I think, really products of that. Uh, thinking. Uh, we worked a long time uh, with Caesar and a long time uh, beside each other. And when we started our practice in 97, it was really the strength of our partnership, our relationship uh, that led us to want to start our own firm. 
I don't think, uh, I think Trump would probably agree, but uh, I know I never had this great burning desire uh, to have my own office uh, and, and, and uh, practice architecture as a startup company. So it didn't come out of any, us starting did not come out of any frustration uh, with whom we worked for. We, we still, you know, Caesar was a great mentor and a great employer. And we got to work on uh, projects all over the world. And it was very enticing and we were well compensated and people liked to work uh, on our teams within the office. Um, but it was really just this thought that uh, Tehran and I had grown and matured and sort of were ready to matriculate out of uh, working for Caesar. And he always sort of felt that way, that his office was more of a training ground than a, a lifelong commitment uh, for, for people. So he, he, uh, he had an immediate strong reaction when we gave him the news. Uh, but since then, uh, from that first moment, he was uh, very supportive of us, came to visit us more than once, really thought of us as uh, maybe the next generation. Uh, whereas he and Kevin Roach both came out of Aerosarinen's firm. Uh, I think Caesar saw uh, that we were the progression uh, of, of his uh, way of thinking about both balancing, you know, client expectations, uh, showing them multiple ways of solving a problem, engaging them in the process with respect and care, but also definitely pushing a design agenda, definitely wanting to think about, you know, what is the next great uh, opportunity for, for building design. So it's been a great ride. You, you both put an emphasis on the importance of, of mentorship, um, that Cesar Pelli was clearly a, a, a strong mentor to you. Was, uh, was the, was he, was he, did he bring you in with that idea that, that I would be your mentor or was that just sort of a result of the relationship that you had when you joined them as employees? I think he's, he was actually continuing a tradition and, uh, the tradition that he came from, I remember as a student, I asked him who was your greatest influence and he said, Sarah. And I said, but your work doesn't look anything like Sarah. And he said, that's exactly the point. It's not the product, it's the process. Yeah. The process of exploring architecture. That's really what he was referring to. And that process is one that he continued in his firm in, in that Caesar would draw everyone to the table and have a conversation. Very Socratic in that process, asking great questions, quizzing you. Caesar would ask you the questions your client is going to ask you. So if you think about it, he's training you yeah. because Caesar was the toughest client we ever had. <laughs> his logic, his rigor was incredibly powerful and you had to pass mustard with him before you could ever step in front of a client. Well, you can't ask for a better training than when you find the art off on your own to be able to stand up in front of very difficult, very tough-minded clients and be able to speak to them. Uh, one of the things that I should say, though, is that in observing him present and seeing how he went about it, uh, one of my rules, uh, I think, is that as I teach my next generation of people who are here, is learn another language. And first, they're, they're quizzical about what I mean when I say that. 
Well, the language that we speak is the language of architects. Well, you're presenting to lawyers, you're presenting to doctors, you're presenting to bankers, they speak a different language. And if you can figure out what that language is and make your presentations, make your work about them and about their, their language of world of ideas, you get much more success than if we have the artists speak that we're so accustomed to speaking with each other. It's one of the, probably one of the best lessons uh, that I learned is if you ever listen to Caesar present architecture, he would speak about it experientially. He would speak about it inspirationally. It was rarely about just the problem solving. The problem solving was there, but at the end of the day, what inspires people is the fact that we have a common experience of how we experience architecture. Was, was Caesar open with the, the business end of his firm? Did he sort of teach you how he ran his firm to be as successful as it was? Well, Caesar uh, had a partner, Fred Clark. The firm is now called Pelly Clark Pelly. Uh, Fred was very much my mentor when it came to running the business side of things, uh, seeking out opportunities, doing business development, uh, responding to requests for proposals, putting teams of consultants together, uh, and uh, negotiating contracts and setting up schedules of delivery of the work, uh, and then really maintaining that relationship, that, if you will, business relationship uh, with the client or clients and making certain that again we were providing great design but that it was done with respect and care and to Tehran's point uh, care towards the things that they were concerned about when a client is hiring you to spend 100 or 200 or 300 million dollars that's a great amount of trust they're putting in you and they want to make certain that even, even though you might have a great reputation that on their project uh, that you're going to take the care, that you're going to design things that are within their budget, uh, that you're going to produce drawings that are good drawings and they're released on schedule, and that you're going to work with the contractor or the construction manager to make certain that uh, the building is built on time, on budget, uh, and there aren't a lot of uh, claims or anything like that. So uh, Caesar was, you know, very much um, into the the art of the profession, whereas Fred was uh, assisting in the business side of the equation. Do you feel, and you have this similar relationship with Tehran? Do, do you feel that that was one of the keys to their success? Do you think Caesar could have become Caesar Pelly, quote unquote? if he didn't have um, Mr. Clark as his partner? Well, I, I, let, let me answer the question relative to us. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, because we, we could have we gone off on our own and started a practice. The last couple of projects Jaron and I were working together on working for Pelly, he was the design team leader and I was the project manager and we would travel to these projects and we would have a, a great opportunity to talk just not just about architecture or the business of architecture, but what made us tick, what was important to us, what we wanted, you know, what we were thinking for uh, the rest of our careers. Because that mid 40s is a time I think where you're thinking, 
uh, okay, is this where I'm going to spend the rest of my career? Right. So uh, we realized, we're smart enough to realize that this is a team sport, that there isn't one person that does everything well. Uh, and um, so we teamed up. And, you know, as I said, we're, we both consider ourselves designers. I'm in all the design reviews with the teams here. Uh, but I definitely defer to Tehran when it comes to the, you know, the final decision about something on the design side. Uh, I, I defer to him, and likewise, he'll, he defers to me on a tough business decision. Um, but there's this, you know, left brain, right brain, and it's not just something that works for us. I think it gives clients, consultants, contractors, and even our employees a sense of comfort because. They realize, um, you know, Tehran is going to definitely err on the side of, well, what's the very best design solution uh, for this, even if it takes longer or we have to, you know, talk the client into spending more money uh, and where I'm going to think about it slightly differently. And in the middle there is some, you know, it's that creative tension uh, that uh, I mentioned relative to uh, the two sides of this business. You know, you can be a very successful architect uh, in terms of designing great buildings and still go out of business. You can be a very successful businessman architect and produce really bad buildings that aren't really architecture. So uh, I think we rely on each other. And as I said earlier, the strength of our relationship, the trust that we have in each other, uh, people see that. Uh, and and uh, we're never competing with one another. People that interact with us, whether it be an employee or a client, uh, they see that and they're comforted because they realize, wow, you know, um, these, these two guys see that creative tension, they're debating it together in front of me, and they want to come up with the best solution for me and my project. It's funny, in the beginning, we used to have the saying that we would tell people, uh, you know, some people were surprised that we paired up, that we became partners. And we used to have the saying that if you're going to start a band, you would not want to start with two drummers. <laughs> That's true. That you really want to find complementary skill sets because this profession that we're in is challenging enough as it is. And the last thing you would want is two very strong minded designers competing with each other in the same firm. It, it's a recipe for disaster, and I've seen it happen in many offices. Yeah. So I think being very thoughtful, very purposeful in how we, we structured this firm was really important to us. Um, we were also smart enough to realize in the very beginning, I, I remember telling Jeff, the, the most important thing we have to build in the beginning is our reputation because that reputation will bring us more work, it will bring us more clients. And we're really proud of the fact that we spoil our clients. <laughs> our, our clients come back to us. There's about 70% of our work are repeat clients because they really enjoyed the working process with us. Uh, if, you, if you talk to me long enough, you'll, you'll hear me say the word process many, many times because the process is such an essential part of, of what we do. Uh, I like to believe that we are incredibly transparent with our process. And we invite our clients into that process and they're part of that 
making of architecture with us. Which, if you think about it, most people have no clue what we do. Most, most people have no idea what an architect actually does. They think they either are dreaming on top of a mountain with a sketchbook, or they think that we're pulling drawings out of a, a drawer and writing blueprints. It's a very uh, arcane uh, expectation and, and perception of what architects do. They have no idea what the complexities are that we deal with. So if we can bring our clients into that world, show them and demonstrate visually through all of our devices, the decision-making process, now all of a sudden they're co-authoring the work with us. And they're feeling as though they are involved. They are part of the solution. My favorite, my favorite element at the very end of a project is when I'm not there to present or explain the project, but my client can. They can tell you why the building is the way it is, as opposed to simply saying, this is because that's what the architect wanted. So those are really important factors for us, that, that notion of a buy-in, the notion of co-authorship. Uh, and you know, I've had friends, architects, who have said to me, well, aren't you afraid to let them see everything? You know, isn't that a scary thing to me? Because they might pick the wrong thing. And I said, well, it's not a simple multiple choice test. There's a process here in which we're explaining the pros and cons of every decision and choice that they might make. And that's very edifying and very satisfying for our clients. I think they feel as though we're being honest with them. They feel as though they have a voice and it's only going to make the project that much better. So you, you launched the firm in 1997, 23 years ago. Um, and uh, I've, I've looked at your work. I, I've seen your work. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. You have some very high-profile clients, some very large projects. Um, what, what is the marketing process to, to gain projects like that? What do you do in order to go through the process of, of being on the list for projects such as that? You know, I, I um, teach a class over at NC State um, once a semester in the pro practice um, class about marketing, public relations, and business development. And I talk about the distinctions of those three tasks. And, um, you know, we, this was on-the-job training for us when we first started our firm. But uh, the business development end of it, starting relationships with people, building those relationships, uh, as Teron said, building our reputation uh, through those relationships. And early on, a lot of our work honestly came from one client saying to another client, you need to meet these, these two guys and engage them, and we're very happy. Uh, as you get larger, you need to get into more public relations and marketing. Um, we are, have a very strategic approach to that. Uh, I, I lead that effort, um, and it's, it's purposeful. It's looking at different markets, commercial office and corporate headquarters versus smaller academic or institutional projects. Uh, they're very, you chase them in very different ways. Um, and and um, we, we want to do both. One of the things that 
Jaron and I love about our current portfolio is the diversity of the work. And that's both interesting from a uh, design perspective, working on buildings that are to us meaningful buildings, but also as a business strategy, you know, if the stock market takes a, a nosedive, we still have uh, academic institutional projects uh, to work on and, and things like that. We also like the fact that we're not uh, we're not just in, in one locale or one region, but we have a pretty broad reach now. But, you know, it has been 23 years and it does take time mm -hmm. to build that uh, reputation. Uh, so it's I think we're purposeful about it. Uh, I think um, it, it only gets more difficult. People, I, I have this joke when I meet people at cocktail parties, I say the problem with architecture is the building gets built. Uh, in that, you know, you're constantly needing to find new clients and new opportunities. And there aren't a lot of people out there other than maybe commercial developers uh, that are constantly building um, new new buildings. So you have to cast a wide net and, uh, you know, repeatedly stay in touch with people. In our foreword uh, for our book, uh, individual to collective, uh, Cesar Pelli wrote that he felt there was still a place for a smaller design-focused firm like ours in this new world of mega firms where uh, the large firms are gobbling up the small firms for both portfolio, uh, uh, talent, uh, and geographical um, positioning as well. So we're often competing against very large firms um, with multiple offices, uh, with hundreds if not thousands of people working for them. Uh, and we're, you know, we are what we would call a generalist firm. We don't specialize in any one project typology. Uh, we like doing more and more uh, student uh, services building, student focused. Uh, buildings like student unions. We just finished our Emory Student Union, uh, and five years ago, uh, the uh, NC State uh, Student Union. Um, so we we feel like there is still a place for a firm like ours that can do the work in the scale that Teron and I were taught to do uh, working for a firm like Pelly. Uh, very large projects. Not all of our projects are large, but we now have the capability of delivering very large projects. Uh, and that has really allowed us to broaden our, uh, our scope and uh, opportunities. But we are more, more often than not competing against very large firms that will bring in a, what they call a thought leader uh, from a particular studio. Uh, and that person will talk about, um, you know, their knowledge when it comes to a certain building type. And we don't want a firm that practices in this um, this this uh, cupboard-like approach where it's all studios and there's thought leaders and experts. We feel like, you know, we're pretty quick reads, pretty fast learners. Uh, and when we do need to know more about a more complicated uh, building type, uh, we we will we're not afraid to team 
with people that know more than we do about a building type. So uh, a lot of our practice in the past 20 years has been teaming up with other firms when it made sense for the client. And I think our clients appreciate the flexibility that from the very beginning we show uh, in how we would propose to uh, deliver a project. How large is your firm? We're in, in the low 60s right now, about 60 employees. And I still consider our, ourselves a small firm. You know, I, I think when, you, when people use that phrase, a small firm, um, in, in many ways it's a mindset more than it is scale, the number of people. Because I think that the, the bureaucracy that comes with becoming a larger and larger firm is in some ways the thing that becomes a stumbling block. Uh, we love that the scale that we're at. We love the fact that we can still give the kind of personalized attention to every project that we're doing. So, uh, and, and that goes a long way. I think that, that clients notice that, they see that. Uh, coming back to something Jeff said, you know, when we first started our firm, one of our former clients asked the question, so what kind of architect do you want to be? <laughs> and we're both kind of stunned and puzzled at the question. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, do you want to be a you know medical specialist? Do you want to be a commercial architect? Do you want to be an academic architect? What do you want to be? And frankly, we had never thought of it that way. We we thought an architect is an architect. An architect has the tools, has the wherewithal, has the analytical skills to tackle a project of any scale and of any type. In some ways, I would say that that would be my advice to a small firm is to continue to absolutely learn and absorb as much information that you can about every building type. Because it, it's uh, we're living in a world where the, the diversity of the work uh, is overlapping, that the different typologies of architecture are overlapping. And if you have the critical analytical skills, you can you can figure out any building type. I, sometimes I think expertise is overrated because I think that looking at things in a fresh way, especially when a client comes to you and says, I'm thinking of doing something new and something different. I'm thinking of the, you designing a new paradigm for me of how we're going to work. Uh, our NCR project in, in Atlanta, we recently finished, headquarters of million square foot headquarters for a big corporation. The day we went in for the interview, the head of facility said, this project for us is a matter of survival. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we have to be able to attract the best and brightest people out there to come work for us. We can't do that uh, where we're currently located out of the suburbs. We want to be in an urban location near an academic center like Georgia Tech. We want to be in a place where we can draw those people. Well, that type of, of project for us, we already had the kind of information we needed to create the environment for, for attracting those young people because we had done a student center. <laughs> and if you think about it, the kids coming out of colleges and universities who experience the student centers we create, those environments are expecting that when they go to the real world and they're working for corporate America. 
So here's a, a cross-pollination of information that we get from a, an academic client translated to a corporate client. And this is where I think being nimble, being flexible, understanding, and being able to make these kinds of connections are really critical for the survival of, of architects going forward. I think that ability to be quick on your feet, because the world around us is changing very, very quickly, and expectations are changing quickly about how we work, how we play, how we commune with each other, and it's changing architecture. It's changing, changed our architecture dramatically in the last five to ten years. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors, FreshBooks and RCAT. 192 hours. In case you're wondering, 192 hours works out to two business days per month. Why the math? Well, if you're an architect and you're using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, that's the amount of admin time you can save every year. How? FreshBooks is so fast and easy to use that it changes the way you deal with your paperwork. FreshBooks is the simplest way to be more productive, more organized, and most importantly, will get you paid faster. You can create and send really professional looking invoices in under 30 seconds. When you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether they've seen it, which puts an end to those guessing games. If waiting for a client check in the mail is slowing down your cash flow, with literally two clicks, you can set yourself up to receive payments online. Oh, and your clients will love paying by credit card straight from their invoice. FreshBooks helps you avoid having that awkward talk with your clients about past due payments. FreshBooks automatically sends late payment email reminders so you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working your magic on the drafting board or on the computer. If you have any questions whatsoever, FreshBooks award-winning customer service is amazingly helpful, super friendly, and zero attitude. Plus, a real live person usually answers the phone in three rings or less. To claim your month-long unrestricted free trial, go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter EntreeArchitect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks. Have you been to ArtCat.com recently? It's the number one most used website for finding building product information. Their powerful search tool allows you to choose what kind of information you want, like CAD, BIM, specifications, and only get results with that data. ArtCat is also constantly fine-tuning their search engine to make sure that you keep getting the information that you asked for. And of course, it's free. It requires no registration, no login, no credit card. If you need product building information and you haven't used RCAT recently, or maybe you've never tried RCAT, head over there right now to RCAT.com and try it out. You'll be glad you did. That's RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. RCAT.com. Build better content today. FreshBooks and RCAT. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. As, as a successful uh, um, generalist architecture firm, 
is there something that you feel differentiates you from other generalist architecture firms? I think a lot of architects want to be a generalist, but they're afraid that there's nothing that that sort of separates them from all the other architects, right? If all the architects are generalists and we do everything, what is it that's 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 sort of our brand? What's our differentiation? that's making us uh, successful? Why would people choose your firm over another? Is there something specific that you see as a differentiator? Is, is there something that you are intentionally developing as a brand for your firm that differentiates you from other firms? One, one thing I, I think we like to say, um, you know, in, in a way we're all thought leaders. We've hired people I remember when Caesar won the gold medal um, and he announced to the firm he had won it and he said, I, this proves something I always believed that if you hire very talented uh, and hardworking people um, around you, uh, they would make you very successful. And our employees here, we, we always I like to say Toronto and I are very good at hiring people because we always hire attitude over aptitude and we're looking for a consistency not in thinking or design approach but values. And one of the things we've heard from our clients is um, there's such a homogeneity in, in the people that are successful here. Uh, they know uh, what our ideals are, the design agendas we want to push, what's important to Toronto and I, and what's not important. But as well, they understand that it is a service profession, uh, that we have to listen to our clients. And again, it's not just listening, but we haven't talked so much about this, but uh, uh, we've mentioned it, this engaging of our clients in our design process, mm -hmm. I think is quite unique. Um, we've developed that uh, from the base of working with Caesar, um, that you don't just put a model or a rendering in front of a client and ask them, do you like this? You come uh, to the room with three or four model options, drawing options, and you say, this is, you know, we're, we were thinking about this with this idea and this other thing with this idea. And we go through this process and it's, it's sort of a, a, an inside joke for Toronto and I because more often than not, they, they listen to the uh, presentation, they've seen three or four uh, options, and they turn to us and say, which one do you like best? Uh, and they often will assume it's the last one we showed them, and it won't be. Uh, but obviously we're showing clients ideas, any one of which we could develop into being great architecture. So doing that, we have to have people uh, that are, are uh, you know, have good judgment, uh, people that um, are, are thinking about what we're doing. You know, it's not just uh, with the advent of computer technology getting more and more uh, powerful. It's not just, you know, let's produce 25 different options, none of which have any um, range of value, but let's just produce ideas to produce ideas. It's really thinking about, um, you know, what we're producing and why. 
I don't like to use the word um, in our office to describe us as intellectual, but it is an intellectual uh, community or culture here where, and Teron mentioned this earlier uh, in, in regard to talking about Caesar uh, being our most uh, demanding client. Uh, our, our studios are open office. Uh, the pinup area is, you know, surrounded by um, other people working on other things. Uh, people are taught uh, to present their ideas to us or to develop the ideas we've talked about as the leaders of the design and then come back to us with the development of those ideas, maybe pushing a, a fourth idea that we hadn't thought of, uh, but they're really, in a way, um, I mean, this is why they call them juries, right? Uh, they're standing there advocating for an approach, and anyone in this office at any time, it could be their first day working here, are encouraged to challenge not just each other's thinking, but Toronto's and my thinking, you know, and do it in a way where you say, you know, I, I know Toronto wanted us to do this, and we've done that, but would you consider doing this? Or what, why are we doing that solution instead of this one? So it's a very uh, Socratic uh, approach, and it's an approach that challenges uh, us all to be better, all to think about what we're doing and why. And, and then when we uh, send people out to meet with clients, again, they, they're not just tr trained uh, to meet our expectations, but they're ready to advocate in a respectful way and engage our clients in our process. I think engaging our clients is probably, uh, if not the biggest distinction of the way we work, certainly one of the top distinctions. Yeah. I mean, as, as you discuss your firm, it sounds like the process the process itself, the, the bringing clients into your process is a differentiator as well as your, your culture. It talk, you talk about the relationship you have with your staff and the way your culture at your, at your firm is built, um, that that then resonates out beyond your firm uh, to help make you successful. Where do you see the future of Duda Payne going? So as, as your firm grows and time moves on, um, do you have a plan for the future of Duda Payne and, and how it continues to grow beyond the two of you? You know, the, the, the beautiful thing about being in an environment, creating a culture that's about respect, teaching, and learning, those three things, those three elements, those three words, in my view, uh, can pertain to anyone. Can, can pertain to your client relationship, to the relationship of people that work in the firm. And, um, you know, in a way, I think after, and we've been doing this now for 20 for 23, 24 years. You hope for the first 20 years you're building a body of work, a portfolio of work that you can be really, really proud of. I think the next 20 years it's going to be Jeff and I being really proud of the next group of leaders that we have in this firm and what they're going to, how, how they're going to push the firm, firm forward and, and actually push the work forward. One of the, the beauties of having a culture where everyone has a voice, everyone gets to practice their voice here, 
And everyone over time has, sees their voice mature with time. And it allows us to maintain the diversity of thinking that we still have, because there are multiple voices in this firm who can continue to push the work forward. So rather than it being a Jeff and my voice that becomes the end of end all of, of design, we now have four more people who are going to assume principles, who will assume leadership here, as design voices going forward. And I think that's a very healthy place to be. Uh, you know, when you think about architects who fostered different models, you know, Caesar used to tell us that even though Frank Lloyd Wright was an incredibly talented architect, very few people came out of the shop to, to, do, to, to become their own architect, to do anything beyond that. Uh, as compared to Saarinen, who had six or seven really well-known architects come out of his studio and to go on and create their own work in their own studios. And that's really a, a mindset. That is the, idea, the this notion that through leadership, you can create a diversity of voices as opposed to a singular voice, which is that of the mentor. It's a very different way of thinking about it. So we're excited. I'm, I'm really excited because I feel like we also have now this body of knowledge, not just body of work, this body of knowledge that we can push forward with that's going to make us even more nimble and even more creative in terms of the work that we're doing. Yeah, I think as, as as exciting as it is to build that 20-year portfolio, I could imagine that um, the, the pride that comes with the next 20 years of sort of watching the, all that hard work blossom into a bigger, not necessarily a bigger, but a, 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 a firm that continues to grow and evolve um, and other leaders become, you know, the, the face. And the, I could imagine that that becomes a very, very... Um, uh, you know, it makes you feel good about what you've done the past 20 years. Um, the, the, I'd, I'd like to sort of wrap things up with our one question for both of you. Uh, let's start with, with Jeff. Um, what is one thing that a small firm architect could do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Well, you know, um, our experience is one that um, is, was wrapped around this notion of 10,000 hours. Uh, and we started, you know, our practice uh, in our middle age, I mentioned at 45. Uh, I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. Uh, I'm just thinking out loud, though, about um, the answer to your question. You know, when we started our practice in 97, um, we, we weren't sure what we were going to do. Uh, in answer to that question, um, a, a former client asked, what kind of architect do you want to be? Uh, but we cast a wide net and we entered a competition in Charlotte to design uh, a project that became Gateway Village, which was a million square feet. So we were two guys, uh, had just started our practice a month earlier, uh, and we were given the opportunity uh, to enter this competition against very large established firms. Uh, someone took a chance at us, uh, with us, and uh, gave us the opportunity to compete in that realm. So immediately we had this opportunity uh, to uh, work within the scale 
and realm that we had been trained to work. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm encouraged by in the Carolinas is the great diversity of work um, in firms here, uh, whether it be residential or small commercial projects, uh, restaurants and whatnot. There's some great design being done here uh, in, uh, in uh, North Carolina. I'm a board member of the AI Triangle and I'm, I'm really just impressed with the quality of design work at any scale that comes out of the Carolinas. So um, maybe, my, maybe my answer to your question uh, would be uh, stay flexible uh, and do what you do well, uh, but also you know, try, try things that uh, you, you'd like to do, but maybe don't think you're qualified to do, uh, like a million square foot project with two people, and uh, see if you can't, uh, can't do that. Because that obviously opened up doors for us and immediately answered a question that I would think be, that would be on any client's mind um, working uh, with a small firm that was just starting to establish it, itself. And that is, can this firm really do a project of that scale? So we like immediately with a resounding yes answered that question and it led to other opportunities uh, across uh, the Southeast and beyond of working at that scale. So I, I think uh, it's great to have a business plan. Um, I think it's it's great to you know even if you want to start younger uh, than we did, we did, uh, but don't don't just limit yourself to doing um, you know a certain scale or a certain type of project. Um, the flip side of that is we recently about uh, eight years ago completed a project. Um, that's a, a swim and racket club uh, for Duke faculty. And it was a $2 million project. And a couple of the people here in the office asked me when I said we wanted to do that project, well, why would you want to do a project so small? And I said, I, we definitely want to do a project like that because we haven't done one. So there's sort of this, you know, uh, I'm not suggesting that everybody throw caution to the wind with their careers or their livelihood, but we constantly push ourselves to do things that we maybe haven't done before. Uh, a project like that, we probably didn't make much money on it. It's won several design awards. Uh, so uh, I would just say, do what you do well, but also push yourself to do things that maybe intuitively you would assume you could do and uh, see where that might lead. Fantastic. Uh, Tehran, what about you? What is one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? You know, um, I've, I've told the story many times. Um, when I graduated from uh, graduate school at Yale, my best friend was actually uh, someone in the fine arts department as a painter. And uh, he and I were both graduating, and I turned to him and I said, well, you know, congratulations, you're finishing graduate school as a painter. What kind of paintings will you be doing? And he said, I'll let you know in 20 years. <laughs> and I thought that was, uh, at first I thought that's kind of a wise ass answer to give, but at the same time I said, it's actually a pretty wise answer to give. 
Because in this world that we live in, you don't know where the next opportunity is going to come from. You don't, very few of us actually write a manifesto saying this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Uh, but in the field of architecture in particular, uh, as I said, in this dynamic world that's changing, it's just a matter of who picks up the phone and calls you and says, have you done one of these? Would you like to try? Uh, that willingness to try something new, the willingness to be open and flexible and nimble uh, is will serve you really, really well. Because I think um, the, the, the dead end is for an architect to say, well, I don't do that kind of work. <laughs> yeah. We take every project as a great opportunity to try something new, regardless of what it is. I have architect friends who say to me, why do you even do developer work? That's the dark side. Those, all they care about is money. Well, if you're willing to teach, if you're willing to be respectful and to teach in a way that edifies your client, guess what? You can raise the level of expectation from making architecture, from making it, some people, you know, when you talk a lot about um, matter of scale and being a generalist, the pitfall of being a generalist, the most common pitfall is that um, buildings are just buildings, they're commodities. They are treated as a commodity. We've done 10 of these, let's do 10 more and move on. It's very profitable, it's wonderful, we're generalists. To be willing to take on every project as a brand new opportunity and to think of it anew is something that takes more work takes more effort, it takes a willingness to learn something new, it takes a willingness to teach your client to expect more, to raise that bar. That effort that you put into it, though, will pay off in spades because you will have learned something and you will have taught something and you will have made something better. Tehran, Duda, and Jeff Payne, thank you very much, both of you, for being so open and honest and transparent about the growth of your firm and how you've done what you do and, uh, and, and how others can learn from what you do. I appreciate you both for spending some time here with me. Um, the website is dudapayne, D-U-D-A-P-A-I-N-E.com. The firm is Dudapayne Architects. You can learn more about them at their website. Uh, Tehran and Jeff, this was a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you very much for, for being here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. Really appreciate talking with you today. Thank you. Okay, so you've been listening to episode 317. That's 317, the link to the show notes and the link to share with a friend. Please share this episode with a friend is entrearchitect.com slash episode 317, entrearchitect.com slash episode 317. Again, you'll notice that most of the interviews during the next couple of weeks have no reference to uh, COVID-19 or the CARES Act or anything else that we're uh, going through right now. I want you to continue to learn from these episodes, learn from what the, the our guests are talking about, apply them as necessary and as, and as practical. Um, I hope you were well. I, I know that there's so much going on right now 
Um, we've been receiving so much information about COVID-19 and the recent stimulus package, the CARES Act approved by our federal government. It's overwhelming, I know. And I hope that you keep coming back here to find uh, a place of comfort, a place where you know that you'll find a... I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.